The Stimulus Podcast is a production of Orman Physician Coaching. If you're feeling burned out or overwhelmed or have any kind of challenge in your career that you're finding it hard to navigate by yourself, coaching might be just what you're looking for. I'm a 20-year veteran of the emergency department and certified executive coach. My job is to help you get where you want to be. Learn more at my website, roborman.com. All right, let's get into it. Barry Curzon, MD, is back. For those of you who don't recognize that name, Barry Curzon is the Dalai Lama's personal physician. He is also a Buddhist monk based in Dharamsala, India, and was our guest on episode 31, which is worth a listen, IMO. He's a pretty incredible guy, and his brain has even been studied to understand the effects of long-term meditation. He's also the founder of Altruism in Medicine, which is dedicated to reviving basic human caring in medical practice. I mean, come on. How is that not like one of the best mission statements of all time? And we've got Barry back on the show. Really, you know what? We have him back just to have him back and get a chance to talk with him, but really dig into a couple of things. One is something that we touched on a bit in our first conversation, but I wanted to get deeper into, which was the difference between empathy and compassion. And also to answer your emails, we got a lot of correspondence after he came on and uh, there was much to discuss. And I'm publishing this episode intentionally in this spot to follow our previous episode on verbal judo, which was titled The Drunk Whisperer about navigating emotionally charged situations. That episode went into specific techniques, specific attitudes. And this episode is more of, I guess you would say, a mindset in all situations, especially the difficult ones. And spoiler alert, it's all about compassion. And before we jump in, I've gotten a lot of emails from listeners about the January conference in Sedona, Arizona, the one that Wild Health is sponsoring. It's Awake and Aware Physicians. There's actually the curriculum is now on the website, so you can see what we're going to be talking about. And to your questions, since several of you wrote in with this question, I will answer it for everyone. Yes, there are still spots as of the publication date of this show. It is filling up, but yes, there are still some spots left. Just check out the show notes for more details on all of that. All right, here we go. Welcome back, good friend of the pod, the Dalai Lama's personal physician, Dr. Barry Curzon. Can you break down for us the difference between empathy and compassion? Sure. So let's look at definitions. The definition of empathy is something like standing in the other person's shoes. That's what we often say. And that suggests being very close. Because if you're in the other person's shoes, you're kind of right on top of them. So we're not talking about physically doing that, but emotionally doing that. That's an important point. Compassion is the wish and the action when we can of reducing or even eliminating suffering. Let me actually flush out the definition a little more of empathy. It's feeling like the other person is feeling. Yeah. So it's like being in the other person's shoes. It's like being very, very close, almost one emotionally. And when we do that, you know, we naturally take on other person's pain because we're so close and we're not taught how to clear it. So it often builds up and that's where it leads to burnout and 
creates lots of problems. Even though the general stance of empathy is wonderful, your heart's open, you're trying to help, and you know, you're there for the person. That's all wonderful stuff. But there's that aspect that can lead us into burnout. Okay, so there's this aspect of empathy that's problematic in healthcare. But do you think that it's problematic outside of healthcare as well? And I, I ask because, you know, thinking of it, like lack of empathy is considered psychopathology. Note, please, that I'd never use the phrase uh, lack of empathy. I haven't used that phrase. What we're talking about is building on empathy and improving oh, okay. it to okay. become compassionate. I might have missed the lead uh, headline there in the last one. So, so <laughs> no. em empathy is a critical skill to build the foundation to then you know, be able to access or have compassion. I wouldn't say that, Rob. <laughs> maybe, I'm miss maybe I'm missing it again. Yeah. I mean, there's no word for empathy in the Buddhist tradition. Oh, okay. Sanskrit, to my knowledge, and I don't have a good working knowledge of Sanskrit, but certainly Tibetan, there's no word for uh, empathy. So when you start cultivating this kind of experience, you start with compassion from a Buddhist perspective. There's nowhere where there's empathy. But in Western sort of psychology and ethos and, and helping traditions, caring traditions, we have empathy. And so what people are taught either in school or in their families or here and there in the ether is empathy. So we've got to work with that because that's where people are generally. And that's why we talk about moving beyond empathy to compassion because many people have not been introduced to this notion that I've just defined of, of compassion. And so we have to work with where we are and then try to improve on that to get us to a more healthier stance of compassion. There's no word for empathy. Does it not exist? I mean, so if you have, say, somebody in that culture is that something that they don't experience because they weren't taught it? I, I guess maybe the question is, do you think that that's something that you have to be taught or is that something that we naturally feel or don't feel? I'm to, and specifically on, and on empathy, I want to get to compassion in a minute. I would suspect that it's culture. You know, if you're brought up in a culture that doesn't really have much of an understanding of empathy, you're not going to learn it. And if you're brought, brought up in a culture that has more of an understanding of compassion is the way we were just talking about it, and we'll continue to talk more about it, then that's what you learn. So I suspect it's more like that. Okay. You know, if you look at some of the early work on compassion, you can look at some of the work that's been done in a number of labs around the world. But one of the labs is at University of Wisconsin-Madison, Richard Davidson, and they look at three to six-month-old infants and they show them a video, and in the video is another infant of roughly the same age trying to push a ball up a, an incline. And then you have a third participant who is also an image in the video. In the first instance, is trying to help that other infant push the ball up the incline. And you can see the the infant pushing the ball up the incline is very comfortable, is there is very relaxed in facial expression and kind of happy and to get the help. And then the other the second video is the same scenario, but the third child, the second one in the video, is doing the opposite, is trying to push the ball down against, you know, that infant trying to push it up the incline. And you see the 
the infant trying to push the ball up the incline, furrowed brow, looks tense, upset, not happy. So from that kind of research, there are many psychologists that conclude that we're kind of born with compassion or, I mean, I don't know if you would differentiate it at this level, empathy Mm -hmm. versus compassion, but caring, that we're kind of born with some kind of innate, if you will, caring. So that, I think, is probably there. And then I think culturally it moves more towards empathy or more towards compassion based on, you know, those around us that are kind of teaching us the so-called culture. When we're talking about empathy, we're talking about in, in the Western sense as we, as we beginning to, how does ego fit into the concept of empathy versus compassion? I think in this question, the two would be fairly similar because they would be opposite to ego, okay? Both empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. So the more egoistic we are, uh, I mean, just say in a particular moment or, you know, a day, a half a day, a few minutes, the more ego clinging we have, the more egotistical we are, the less compassionate we're going to be because we're going to be all about me, me, me. And when we're caught up in me, 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 there's a little room and energy and even thought for you, you, you. So the opposite is when we're more humble, you know, in a mood where we're more relaxed, maybe we're more humble and not clinging so tightly to me, 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 then there's more energy, more room and much easier to think about uh, and be concerned about the welfare of others. And in that category of thinking about the welfare of others would fit both empathy and compassion. When we're talking about compassion and we're speaking English, it's a word in English. And, and you were saying before that you know, the word empathy doesn't exist in, in Tibetan or maybe Sanskrit. So, how, but when we talk about compassion, how does the word compassion differ in English from how it's used in the East? Huge difference. And you know, that's part of the problem is we don't have a good English correlate. This is often the problem when you're trying to bring Sanskrit or Tibetan into English when you're looking at kind of technical vocabulary around Buddhism because English language grew up with you know Judeo-Christian traditions so the words are going to have overtones of those traditions and so compassion actually is not just an emotion when you look at so the word in Tibetan is ningje and the word in Sanskrit is karuna When you look at those terms, they involve emotion, but it also has a huge cognitive element or component, which has to do with attitude, which has to do with maybe more like a mood than an emotion. And it's it's quite vast. It includes our heart. It includes our mind. So it has a whole different contextual flavor and understanding compared to when we translate it and use the word in English, compassion. We're going to talk in a minute about someone who is drowning in empathy, but I'm curious in your experience, I know you, I mean, this is really a a mission for you teaching compassion. Do you think that compassion can be taught to someone who legitimately feels no empathy? What do you mean by legitimately feels no empathy? Like maybe, maybe someone who has autism or, or, or Asperger's and says, yeah, I, I just don't feel that. I mean, I, you could, I guess you could even go into somebody who's a psychopath who by, 
definition has no empathy, but that might be a little bit too far. But, you know, so, somebody says, you know, I, I just don't feel it in my wiring. Yeah, of course you can train it to anyone. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they can incorporate it into their lives is hard to say. Recently, I saw an incredible short YouTube of a woman with Alzheimer's, pretty severe Alzheimer's disease, and they played for her, I think it was Swan Lake. And she, in her youth, had been a pretty, if not professional, then semi-professional ballerina. And she had danced to Swan Lake. And they played this for her. And she started to change. And with her hands and her body, she was looking like a swan. And not only a swan, but a ballerina in Swan Lake. I mean, it just brought tears to your eyes. This is a pretty profoundly affected woman with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so you never know, Rob. It's worth a try. I'm not saying it's always going to be effective. And, you know, it may be effective not today, but tomorrow. There are all levels of how people can incorporate that. So it's not an easy kind of thing to look at. Has it been effective or not? So I would say that it's useful to do. Of course, people that are much less in touch with their cognitive function and have trouble learning, then this will be more of a challenge, of course. But, you know, you don't always teach with words. You teach with modeling. I have an example that moved me deeply. I was in Madison, Wisconsin. This is a number of years, about 10 years ago or eight years ago. And Richard Davidson et al., their group, they were studying a number of long-term meditators studying their brains to see if their brains were the same or different anatomically, the same or different than non-meditators. And while I was there, one of my visits on my schedule was to go to a yoga class. So I thought, well, they're giving me a little R&R. &R. So, you know, I put on my shorts underneath my robes and went there and I didn't know what was happening. And Neither did the people there. They weren't quite expecting me, but, you know, they were gracious. And you know, I took my robes off, had my shorts, and was ready for this to start. And I noticed that people started coming in and people were acting a little bit strange. And I recognized that people were acting like, you know, they had autism, quite a range. And there were children. I mean, there were, I think, four-year-old to 74-year-old people in there. And there was one young woman, uh, you know, young woman, late adolescent young woman who, and, and I was very calm and I was very relaxed. She kind of came up to me and she started running circles around me. You know, and I think if someone didn't recognize even a little bit what was going on, they'd be frightened. You know, I wasn't really frightened. And then she started to run slower and slower and slower. And then she really calmed down. And a little later, then, then we did the, we got in and it was an incredible instructor who I found out later actually had mild or Asperger syndrome, mild end of the spectrum of autism. It was the instructor and he was amazing. And later when we finished, the mother of this woman that was running circles around me, a young woman, she came up to me and she said, my daughter is actually incredibly creative. She seemed to really relax around you and like you. You know, she expresses it differently maybe than other people, but she also writes poetry. And I said, wow, I, you know, that would be wonderful to have a look. And so the mother sent me some of her poetry, which is beautiful. So my point is that 
teaching compassion is not always like, here's the textbook or here are the words or the concepts and go ahead and implement it. You know, I think there are a lot more, many ways that sometimes can even be more effective, including modeling compassionate behavior to teach compassion. We've got some listener questions here and some vignettes to work through. And I want to start out with one from our listener's name is Adam. He's a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And he says that he has decades of clinical experience and that he has an almost embedded or at at this point, hardwired empathy that he'd like to take a half step back from. As you say, you know, compassion is a half step back from empathy, but he, he feels like he's not being as good as a clinician or physician as he can be without taking on his patient's suffering. He says he loses sleep about his patients and their suffering. I mean, he he does a lot of scoliosis work. I mean, those are really dramatic cases. And he Mm -hmm. listened to our previous conversation. He really liked that mantra, just like I want to be happy and not have pain. So does this other person just want happiness and not to hurt. He said, oh, that, I, I like that. So that's a really great way to invoke compassion. But when I say it or I think it, feels, it feels like words. And he said, you know, he could kind of see the, he could see the reasoning in it. But he says, my empathy response is so deeply ingrained. I mean, it's, it's not healthy. He's not, he doesn't love it. So he says, beyond the mantra, how can I effectively move from empathy to compassion? Well, Adam, I think it's an incredible motivation that you have intention to, de- in a way, deepen your empathy without losing sleep and having it maybe be more effective and taking better care of yourself. Whether or not empathy is actually hardwired in your brain, that's a metaphor. It's a concept, and you have the option of letting go of that concept because the more you grasp on that concept, you know, the tighter probably you'll cling to practicing empathy. But if you can kind of let go of that concept, because it isn't hardwired, you know, ask your neurosurgery friends, they don't find hard wires of empathy in the brain, <laughs> open up the brain, you know. So it's a concept, it's a metaphor, and change your metaphor slowly. and. Secondly, yes, those are words that just like me, she, he just wants to be happy and not hurt. Those are words. The more you recite them, the more you get familiar with them, they start to have a life of their own. They start to feel, they start to, you know, have a, 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 com- a compassionate, you know, experience. It takes time. You have to have patience, you know, but keep moving in that direction. If you, if it feels good to you, follow your heart on this and keep moving in that direction. It won't change overnight. These things take, you know, probably weeks, months, even longer. Sometimes you talked about decades of getting this Mm -hmm. compassion to sort of be quote unquote hardwired. So, and it's not like we're throwing empathy out. We're not, we're building on empathy to make it more effective. So for both for our patients and for ourselves. It also, when we move, you know, beyond empathy to more compassionate stance, we, by being not quite as emotionally close, we're still close, but we're not kind of, you know, nose to nose like the 
Maori would do in New Zealand. You know, we have a little distance emotionally, but we're still very open. Our heart's open. We're caring deeply for the other person. But when we're not so emotionally attached and enmeshed, then we can actually have more perspective. We can see more. So cognitively, we can do a better job of recognizing, you know, what can I do that might be a little improvement to help this person suffering? So we have more choices and more perspective and more clarity to make those decisions a little better. All right. Well, I know Adam is a very concrete guy. I mean, he, come on, he's a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hammers and chisels. So here we go. We're going to go a little, we're going to well, go a little. Wait, wait a minute, Rob. Wait a minute, yeah. Rob. I got to put something in here. Yeah. My yeah. mentor in medical in school, he was an orthopedic surgeon <laughs> and he was one of the most open heart yeah. physicians or people that I knew. So maybe what you say is true, but you know, that's oh, no. also a. Adam's, he's, he's got an open heart. He's got it. I know him. He's, he's a kind, loving okay. part. But, but when I say concrete, I mean, to say, okay, I, I need a really specific exercise or skill. We're going to transport you into the treatment room with Adam. And he's in a scoliosis patient. They're really suffering. The family's having a difficult time and he's, and he's feeling it. He's just, oh my gosh, he just, you know feeling the weight on, on it. And he turns to you and he says, Barry, I need a point of care exercise to work on this feeling of drowning in this empathy right now. I, I, I love my patients. I want them to be well, but being in there with them is too much day after day. So it, in this moment, the mantra I, I understand, but it's not it, it it's not really clicking for me in the long term. So right now, what what can I? I mean, obviously, you're not going to fix everything right away, but what can I work on right now in this moment? So three things come up. I would say, Adam, number one, you know, we're trained as physicians to heal the patient, and if the patient doesn't heal, and particularly if they die, but if they don't heal or die, we often feel like we're a failure. And that is tangential to guilt. We feel that we haven't done, that we're a failure, that we haven't done the full job as a physician. We're, and that's part of the culture that we're raised in, in medical school and residency. And when we get out into practice, that's kind of often our MO. And yet that's not realistic. So I would say sometimes people just aren't going to get better, even with our best, the best we can offer ourselves, and maybe we have a team, we have consultants, et cetera. Sometimes people are just not going to get better. And sometimes people do die. I mean, that's the natural way of things. We can't. So we're not God. And if we think that we can do it all, it's an unrealistic expectation. So see if you have some of those expectations to fix it all. And if you do, try to back off a little on that, be more realistic. That's the first thing, or two th first two things, one expectation, the second guilt. And the third was, yeah, try now just to step back emotionally, you know, see if you can, you know, still be open, that, that family, that person with the scoliosis is suffering tremendously, it's affecting the family tremendously, but step back a moment, you're doing everything you can, feel good about that, 
continue to do that. And it's not necessary that you take on their pain and suffer with them. It doesn't help you. And actually, I don't think it helps them also because you begin to be a little bit like an enabler, you know, in the addiction literature and the addiction hmm, sort of dynamics. And being an enabler is not the most healthy way to help out. Let's take a break here and talk about a new sponsor for the show, IV Clinicians. That is IV, IVY, not like the intravenous line. IVY Clinicians, all one word. I am so excited about what they have created because it fills an incredible need. It fills a void in emergency medicine. And that void is how to find out about, or how do you know about options in the job market? Now that might sound like a small thing. Well, I don't know. You just find out. But historically, it's come down to, all right, who do you know? Or what jobs are posted on job boards? Most of them are not. Maybe there's a headhunter. Well, yeah, maybe a small percentage of those jobs. But that combination still gives you a tiny minority of the options out there. And it's a really inefficient and kind of an inequitable process. But what IV Clinicians has created is a database and a search engine with, how many, let me look, how many, like over 5,500 hospitals that lets you find almost all of the emergency departments in the US, and then you just search whatever geographical area you're looking for. So let, let me show you by example here. All right, I'm gonna do a search. I'm just gonna go to a small little town. I'm gonna type in Cohasset, Massachusetts. Here we go. Type in my profession, it is physicians. And there's options to put in physician, PA, or nurse practitioner. So options for all three. All right, so I see two hospitals there. I see one general emergency department, one level two trauma center. Cool, now I'm looking at both of their volumes. I can find out you know, what kind of EMR they're using, how many patient visits, do they have cath lab. But there's all sorts of statistics and all sorts of information. And then it's like, oh, I'm, I'm interested. Click, click on the recruiter and boom, done, connected. The connection is made. And so what just happened? What just happened is now you have the power. Historically, there's been a power differential that did not favor you, but now it does. I've worked at so many different shops and the process of finding where to work has historically been a real scramble. All right, who did I know or who did I know that knew somebody that knew somebody or it's ridiculous. This database and the search engine, it empowers physicians and PAs and nurse practitioners by giving you options in the emergency medicine job market. And frankly, I see this as a wellness tool because oftentimes you can feel trapped in a job or it can be mysterious or opaque or even inscrutable about how the heck to find a job. What's out there? What are my options? Well, I guess I'll just stay here because, you know, what else am I going to do? If you are curious, if there is a better or different clinical opportunity out there, or you just want to look around and throw a little Zillow action on, on this website, whatever, whatever you want to do, just check it out, ivyclinicians.io. It makes it so simple. It's secure. And if you're wondering what it costs, it's free. It's free for you to use this service. ivyclinicians, ivyclinicians.io. I want to present a couple of cases that are going to be all too real for many of the listeners. And it's one where you take the emotional hit I mean, just a big one. And the other where it's your patient who takes a hit, but your empathy really becomes overwhelming. And I think there'll be some of what we discussed with Adam, but there's some unique aspects to this. So the first case 
is you miss your, say, an emergency doc and you miss a pulmonary embolism diagnosis. And you say, well, I was assuming that patient had musculoskeletal chest pain. Well, they're discharged and they die. And you know, or you assume that there's going to be a lawsuit, but even more so, you feel tremendous guilt over the misdiagnosis and, you know, just what happened with this person, the weight of the pending litigation, all that entails. So your internal critic gets turned up to 11 in these situations. How in this situation do we find self-compassion? I mean, you, you're like, you just, you, you, there's this echo, you made a mistake and someone died. And your internal mentor, the internal compassionate part, you know, seems to be this small and the other part seems to be this big. I don't think you're going to change it on a dime. I think it's going to be work that we're going to do over months and years so that next time our times we're in maybe not the exact situation, but similar situations, we'll be able to respond in a more healthy way. And what I would work on is guilt. So slowly we can recognize our guilt. And, and this is something we've been doing since we were young kids. So we're not going to overturn this overnight. And it's going to take years, a lot of work. But slowly we can reduce our guilt, recognizing it's not healthy. And so that's, I think, a major piece of this. Number two is the expectation piece that, you know, we are just going to make mistakes. I think we can also remember at the end of the day. So when we go home that day after we've been served the summons or heard from the lawyers or whatever that, you know, we're being sued, that when we go home at the end, end of the day, remember all the 10 things we did. I mean, we do thousands of things, but let's say it's 10 or let's say it's a thousand, you know, or let's say it's a hundred. Yeah. Remember all hundred. So probably 90 of the things we did out of the hundred, they went well, we felt good about. 10 of them didn't, didn't, didn't go, do so well. We would have, you know, oh, I wish I could do that again. And we just spend our time thinking about those 10 at the end of the day and kind of feeling guilty and feeling, you know, less adequate that we made these mistakes and how could I have done it better? Of course, it's important to review that stuff, but we also, it's important to review the other 90 things that we did that went well and to celebrate, to pat ourselves on the back. You know, we did a good job. So to be more realistic in that sense, when we review the day, even with that summons, that, you know, lawsuit because of missing the pulmonary embolism. Let, let's say you took that, you know, rather than just, well, I just want to think about that. You took that into a meditation and that was going, and maybe it's an analytical meditation. Maybe it was a, a concentration or a mindfulness meditation, but Whatever you're doing, it's just kind of, you know, like this throbbing red alarm going in your mind, just sort of replaying this and fear and guilt and shame. How would you respond to that during that meditation or during those moments? Or, you know, like you're, you're trying to sleep or you're, you're or not even have to be meditation. You know, you're doing, you're doing whatever. And those, those thoughts are just reverberating. So the same same way we'd we would approach like a panic situation or you know a PTSD that's more acute, we would first try to look at it physiologically. So first we take you know we we sit down on a chair or a cushion if we're doing meditation, and we would set our motivation to help ourselves, help all others, and then try to realize that what's happening to us this throbbing guilt as you beautifully portrayed it, Rob, you know, that it's not real. 
that it's kind of at least partially made up by our concepts and then do some physiologic work. So three deep, deep breaths, take slow three deep breaths in and out through our nose with our mouth closed. If that didn't calm thing down, things down, do a few more, a few more. If that didn't work, then we do something called, called nine round breathing. And if you want to go into that, we can, or we can do sure. it later. It would take probably the whole exercise. I, I, I kind of explain it. We do it together. Then I'll let you do it on your own. And that whole thing takes about 15, 15 minutes, maybe 20. Without going deep, at least at, at this moment into the nine round breathing, like what's the basic structure of that? So one round of breathing is in and out. We just, so we do nine of those and we do it through our nostrils. So three will be in our right nostril, out the left nostril. Another three will be in the left nostril, out the right nostril. And the last three will be in both nostrils and out uh, both nostrils. If you'd like to learn more and have instruction on this, please go to Altruism Medicine, one word, double M dot O-R-G. That's the website for our Altruism in Medicine Institute. And you'll find it there in our, in our resources, uh, an instructional video for the nine round breathing. What do you think? Is that kind of activating your parasympathetic nervous system? And what, uh, I'm curious as to what, what happens when you do that alternate nostril breathing. From an autonomic nervous system perspective, if you do that, you notice that your heart rate is, you know, less, that you're breathing slower, you're just more relaxed. So yes, it definitely has an effect on the vagus and on the autonomic nervous system, a healthy effect uh, on the autonomic nervous system, yes. I want to get into another case, which is you diagnose a mother of two small children, she's got glioblastoma. She comes in with a headache and you diagnose to GBM. I mean, I, I would see that, you know, once or twice a year. I mean, it's just, just devastating. And, you know, even more so, she's, you know, she's your age. Her kids are the same age as your kids. And, you know, the conversation with her, you reveal the diagnosis. I mean, it's just, it's just heart-wrenching. And then you find yourself thinking about her. You think about her children. You think about her husband. I mean, constantly interferes with your your sleep, your ability to be joyful around your own family. And I mean, th I, I think that this is, I mean, in, in my mind, just this quintessential moment when empathy is sort of your natural recourse, right? It's your, it's your reaction. What are the steps you can take to be compassionate without being fully immersed in that empathy? You know, to remember the difference the moving beyond empathy to remember to try to step back a half a step emotionally, not to be so enmeshed, to try to remember, as you kind of quickly mentioned, this is my patient and her husband and her children. It's not me. It's not my kids. It's not my spouse to remember the difference. This is also very important. And when you do that, you still keep your heart open. You still have this tremendous concern and you, you know, do everything in your power. You, you recognize your limited powers, but you do everything in your power to try to help when you can. But doing those things will gradually, you'll recognize that this is not you and your family. 
it's the other person's family. And, and that'll make it a little bit easier for you while you continue to be compassionate and doing everything, everything you can to help them. And I would add also that I think guilt is part of the equation. Oh, interesting. Uh, it could, yeah. could be part of the equation. So I would also explore that. And if you do find that there's some guilt in there, maybe it ties as you observe over time to particular incidents in your own life. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But you can begin to try to reduce the intensity of that the, the guilt part of, uh, of that reaction also. I think that's also very helpful. How does guilt tie into that? Maybe that you can't fix it. Okay. You know, that, you know, so in, in a way, kind of like a failure and we're kind of trained to be failures. If we don't fix other people's pain, you know, we're trained that way as a, as physicians and, and other healthcare professionals, not just physicians. Do a lot of workshops. You do, you know. I was actually I was just watching an online one that you did. So, say you were leading a workshop on moving from empathy to compassion, and you, you've got a few days to teach some skills that people would, of course, then go take home and work on in practice. What would you do? What, how would those days be structured? I think we'd, you know, approach it from the the perspective of cultivating compassion, you know, rather than moving from empathy to compassion, more focus on compassion and look at the different aspects and, you know, kind of doors or windows into compassion. So we might do a meditation where we look at, uh, at love and compassion and joy and equanimity that we might do a compassion where we are uh, seeing ourselves as a ball of, of light, of, of radiant golden light or white light or five-card light that radiates out love and compassion and fills others. We might begin to look at universal compassion to define it and understand what that what that is from the perspective of what we call exchanging the attitude of cherishing, you know, me, me, me versus cherishing others and how we can begin to make that shift or that exchange, which we often do with the breath. So we take on the suffering of others as we breathe in. And as we breathe out, we fill others, including ourselves, with love and compassion and wisdom. And if we find that taking on other suffering, if it sticks, if it's more like empathy, then rather than taking it literally inside of us, we see it being liberated from the crowns of everyone else into the stratosphere and don't actually take it into ourselves. So those are some of the other ways to look at compassion that we would that we would cultivate and then as our compassion slowly gets stronger then we're ipso facto you know going beyond empathy to compassion i live on a really busy road in the winter there's a ski mountain up the road and in the winter i don't know if you've ever seen the movie the hunger games or read the book or heard about the hunger games but it's this really horrible violent thing where everybody is just limited resources and they're just it's just violence on violence and, and it feels like that on the road it's just so much tension so many people and it's irritated me for years and i was in that traffic last week and it was after kind of going through all the stuff and preparing for this interview and i was looking at the car behind me who was kind of tailgating me it's kind of icy and i thought you know what i bet you just want to be happy just like i do and i felt this 
it felt like a bag full of water and then and then the bottom of it tore open and like all the water came out i was like oh that i love your metaphor because your metaphor is one of birth yeah breaking the uh the membrane it's your membrane rupturing and and giving birth and so for you this was maybe it's a nice metaphor yeah I like the way you describe it. I was just thinking a plastic bag. I like the I like the birth metaphor. Your metaphor. I just put different <laughs> words to it. You know, you you were mentioning something before a a meditation where you know you're taking in that person's suffering into your heart and you're you're breathing it out. And I, I, I want to get into that a, a little bit more and kind of kind of how that works because when I was in college, we had I think there must have been some kind of exchange program with. Dharmshala and and there were always Tibetan monks on campus, always wa- walking around. Where were, you, where were you in college? It was at Emory University. Yes, there, there are and have been for many years, uh, many types of exchange programs, often to do with science. As the monastic communities uh, now in India, before in Tibet, but now in India, refugee communities, they're now learning science in the monasteries. And Emory University has been one of the uh, main ones that's been developing that program along with other universities. One day, as I was a freshman, there were flyers. This is back when we used to have flyers pasted up everywhere. There were flyers everywhere that there was a Tibetan Lama who was going to do a guided meditation in the campus chapel. And, you know, and I had been meditating since I was 10 and I was part of martial arts class. And I, I can't say that I fully got it back then because, you know, it was just it was part of a relaxation and a part of just to bring your mind into to what you were about to do. But you know, I was 10 and I wasn't, I wasn't fully in it. But I'd say the experience with the Tibetan Lama on that day, you know, like was just pivot point in my life. And as you're describing things, it, it makes a lot of sense. And there were about a hundred of us in the chapel, maybe, maybe a little bit more. And the, the Lama was on, on a dais on a, a throne, we call it a throne. A throne, like he was sitting on on cushions, sort of elevated. It's elevating the teachings because the teachings have the capacity, the potential to bring in incredible joy and love and wisdom. It's not the person that's actually being elevated. So, the, a, a, a genuine teacher, Lama or teacher, is on the throne with humility. He spoke almost in a whisper. He had a microphone, spoke in a whisper, and he guided us through about a half an hour of progressively imagining our body with a golden glow. Started in our toes, went through our body, and then it and then it concentrated in our hearts. And then he had us take in whatever suffering we could imagine. Person we know, person we didn't know, a group, whatever. He recommended we do it with someone who we had difficulty with who might be suffering visualize the darkness and then breathe it in. Let it penetrate your glowing heart and then just kind of settle in your glowing heart. And as you breathe out, as you were saying, you breathe the glowing positive energy to him or to her or whatever. And it was incredibly powerful. And everyone in the room is just looking around like, what just happened? And I had never experienced anything like that, both in how I felt internally and frankly, I mean, I, like, I felt really good. I felt like a million bucks. And also how I felt about the suffering of the person I was thinking about, who I frankly thought was just the devil's milk. I mean, just, and I said, oh, they, they must be suffering so much to be in that state. Mm. And I, I think that that was called Tonglen 
meditation. I'm not, I'm not sure, but can you break down what happened there? Yeah, that is called Tonglen, and it means uh, giving and taking or taking and giving. With the in-breath, we take on the suffering of others, and with the out-breath, we give the joy and the you know, love and compassion uh, to others. So that is the practice. You know, a good teacher is someone who experiences what they're teaching while they're teaching. And that has a tremendous impact on the person that's receiving or learning, much more than the teacher that's just reading the words out of a textbook. And we all know that from our education. And so you, I don't know the Lama that you're talking about, but it seems like this Lama, him or herself, had tremendous experience of deeper compassion. And when he or she was leading the meditation, you know, because they have this deep experience that that comes through in the teaching and you can feel it. Uh, the other point that's important to, not to miss is that when we compa practice compassion, it feels good. <laughs> we feel, like you said, like a million bucks. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama often says, you know, be selfish, practice compassion. Now, you know, we don't always want to do it with that motivation, but it's a good way to start or to be, you know, to move our compassion along. And then, you know, we let go of that grabbing on to feeling good, you know, the selfish part. But it's okay to do that, at least for some time to help develop your compassion. I want to change gears a little bit and actually, and I want to get back to, to meditation in a moment, but we have this question from Dr. Scott Weingart, who's, who's well known to most listeners of the show. And he, he poses this really interesting kind of scenario and he asks, and, and this is, I, maybe this is within the realm of compassion, I'm not sure, but he asks, what is the decision point between accepting the people around you versus changing the people around you? Is the answer to just always accept everybody as they are? Say your boss or colleague drives you up the wall. Do you accept them or do you try to alter their behavior? I think you do both. I mean, you have to accept the way people are. We can hardly change ourselves, let alone change the other person. So that's being realistic to accept that that's a product of their upbringing and et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, you know, be ready, you know, for when we think we can practice what we call skillful means, we can actually try to make some difference either through modeling or a gentle something here and there that doesn't overwhelm them. In my world, modeling often works the best with someone like that. I mean, maybe you even want to change your job if you're, if you're <laughs> such a possible You're not going to change that person. I mean, realistically. There Unlike you go, Scott Weingart. Barry Curzon says, change your job for that group. Well, no. <laughs> no, I'm, just kidding, Scott, I'm kidding. You know, I, I'm not, you know. But, you know, sometimes we may have yeah. to change our situation if it's real caustic. Uh, that's an option we have to look at. Yeah, you know, and try these things that we've talked about now, you know, over and over again, Rob, you, both you and I, you know, remembering that that person is suffering if they're a caustic personality remember that they only want to be happy but they don't know how to be happy maybe they're not even aware of you know that they want to be happy sometimes how sad that is how you know how much suffering that must be 
And the more you begin to see that other person that way, you will unconsciously, or I like to say subconsciously, you know, react then differently to that person. And it may shift things a little bit in your relationship, whether or not you're changing the other person or not, I don't know. But it may have a positive effect on your relationship with that other person. So without, you know, losing your integrity, but sometimes you may want to kind of almost side with that person or support that person and things that they do that they do well, because, you know, it's never black and white. And all those little things may help shift a little bit that relationship. Talking about modeling, I think about a friend of mine, he's a nurse in the emergency department and, and everyone in the city knows him. He's kind of like the unofficial mayor. His name is Jose Pacheco. And I remember there's this one hospitalist that we worked with who was super sour. Like he was the sour patch kid and always just, it looked like he was eating a lemon 24 seven. you like, you'd, you'd call him from an admission and, and you know, you were just going to get the howitzers of, re- of resistance from him. And it was just, it was just unpleasant. And then I was with Jose. We were at the, I think we we're at the gym or we were somewhere and we, we saw him, we saw the guy and he just lit up with this big smile. I said, what's going on with that guy? Because Everyone hated that guy and treated him that way. And Jose said, I just treat him with love. And the guy, he just came up and gave Jose a hug. I said, okay, that is giving me chills to think about it. That, that is quintessential modeling. Even that guy who's eating, he looks like he's eating a lemon all the time. Even he wants to be happy. Jose Pacheco, three bows of respect <laughs> and admiration and joy. Yeah, you are an incredible person to have around the emergency room and around your family, your community. And I'm very, very happy to hear about your modeling love for, in this case, a extremely difficult person, at least in the medical sphere, in the hospital, the hospitalist that, you know, everyone sees is throwing howitzers, you know, and, and, and has lemons in their mouth. So thank you very much, Jose. You have a wonderful uh, friend and, and colleague in, in Jose, it sounds like. I mean, you know, this is someone who just doesn't have many enemies. It's, I mean, he may have some, I don't know, but he may not have many and maybe not strong enemies. He may have this incredible ability to see everyone as, as kind of a friend like His Holiness the Dalai Lama does. I think you're right. And he, he was actually in the very first moment of the very first episode of this show, was his voice. And we were talking about how to deescalate people that are agitated. Maybe somebody's intoxicated or they're psychotic and, and they're violent. And his nickname is the drunk whisperer. Because usually what happens when somebody's violent and drunk is you get 15 yeah. burly security guards. And, and when that happens, if Jose is working, people will wave him in and and they'll say, Jose, can you, can you whisper to this guy? And he'll walk in and just kindly from from a distance. He has this whole sequence that he goes through and he just treats people with kindness and respect. And I'd say 95 out of 100 times verbally de-escalates to the end. And this is this is not hyperbole. To the end, I've seen it happening where they're hugging. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. I think that's fabulous. You have an incredible resource. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've, I've asked him about this. Where does this come from? It's very deliberate and it I think it's rooted in a practice of continual intentional gratitude. 
even the moments that are bad. And I think that that's sort of the secret simple sauce. Hmm. Well, you know, you, you've just touched on a number of sort of tangential areas and entrances to the practice of compassion, one of which is gratitude uh, and forgiveness. And, and forgiveness means forgiving ourselves as well as forgiving others, those hurts that we've built up over periods of time. And we do that often as a solo activity. It's not a right or wrong. It's not like you're saying, you know, you're right, the other person's wrong, or now you're saying they're right. It's nothing to do with right or wrong, a blame. Just lifting a lot of those hurts, which are emotional scars, that's forgiveness. And doing the same, forgiving ourselves with all those emotional scars. And then gratitude, having gratitude even for little things uh, that we're alive, that we can take the next breath in for the beauty around us, you know, see it, recognize it, have gratitude uh, for nature and gratitude for all those people that are doing, you know, good stuff around us and in the world and on and on, just have gratitude for everything. And then we're happier, it rubs off on others. Others have often feel a little more calm and relaxed and relationships improve. Do you start your day off with an intention? Yes, I do. So what I do is when I wake up, and sometimes I'll stay in bed a little bit, but when I wake up, I just sit up in bed before I get out of bed. And I do a very short meditation. What I'm doing is I'm setting my intention for the day. So I start with some wisdom. I try to re remember and do a short wisdom meditation that I'm not who I think I am. And I'm not putting myself down. Please don't misunderstand that. But I'm not who I think I am. And so then I try to rest in that not finding or absence of the false berry. And then I go into a brief compassion meditation and I do a brief tone lend where I take on the suffering of others and give back love and, and compassion and all the good stuff to others. And then I get up and then I do my bathroom stuff and then I go and sit and do my longer meditation. Barry, as always, thank you so much. Wonderful. Appreciate the time. We've been at this for a couple of hours. I mean, you were, you were an iron man of conversation. I appreciate it and look forward to the next time. Thank you very much, Rob. It's been really a delight. And uh, I hope being outside hasn't been too distracting with planes and, and lawnmowers and you know, different sounds in the background. It makes it natural and gritty. <laughs> and that's it. That's it for today. To learn more about one-on-one -on -one coaching, to get details on our January 2023 conference in Sedona, Arizona, or complete show notes of this or any other episode. You'll find it all. You'll find all that and more, so much more, so, so much more at our website, roborman.com. And until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.